Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, Delivering Kinder, Smarter, Affordable Care for All. I co-author a monthly thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry. This month, we're reflecting on 2021, another just remarkable year in U.S. healthcare, and thinking about 2022 through the perspective of the investment and capital markets communities. Our article is aptly titled, Looking Back, Looking Forward, A Golden Age of Healthcare Innovation, with a question mark. My co-author and one of my favorite people is Rob Freeman, the president of Kane Brothers. Rob, welcome to House Calls, where the bankers like you are always in. Dave, it's a pleasure to be here and always a pleasure to talk with you on these podcasts and to listen to your podcasts with my colleagues. Free advertising. Gotta love it. So, Rob, we decided to use a question mark at the end of our subtitle. Let's talk about why 2021 left us with that somewhat uncertain feeling. So, first of all, 2021 was another brutal year for frontline healthcare workers coming off of 2020. How did you see the industry and particularly the financial sector respond to the challenge of the pandemic? Well, first of all, the question mark at the end of our title, I think, is probably something we did out of modesty. There are so many points of view these days in every part of our world and the political world and whatnot where people are making bold statements. I don't think we can really assess whether this is a golden age of healthcare innovation until it's in the rearview mirror. So that's why the question mark, along with lots of other things about what's going on in the U.S. these days. I have to say, I think that the frontline healthcare industry had obviously and continues to have into 2022 another exceptionally difficult and challenging time. Obviously, Omicron led to incredibly high hospitalization levels once again. But now coming two years in, it also led to continued burnout at every part of the economy, but certainly every part of the healthcare profession. In particular, you have to feel for the frontline healthcare professionals who are working in hospitals and clinics and nursing homes and any place else where they're touching patients where uh, they're having exceptionally difficult times. That, of course, has led to labor shortages. It's also led to a remarkable resurgence in, for instance, the healthcare staffing industry uh, to try to address some of these labor shortages. Now, you've got the supply chain issues obviously continuing on, affecting every industry, certainly including healthcare. And then, of course, the mental health uh, challenges that are probably going to continue for many, many years. But we're seeing it now, not just in the elderly, of course, but, you know, the other end of the spectrum and tragically, you know, for children and adolescents. So all of these things have led to a particularly difficult time in the industry. And yet the industry, in so many ways, as we'll talk about today, really stood tall. And the people who are on the front lines continue to work in a remarkable way, but also, as we'll discuss, the people who provide capital and help drive innovation in the industry really doubled down their activities. Yeah, I agree with you. Obviously, the frontline professionals are the ones that ran into the fire. I mean, their heroic efforts and courage and resilience under just the toughest conditions was really remarkable to watch, continues to be remarkable to watch. 
And at the same time as the industry confronted these issues relating to staffing, supply chain, and so on, as you described, there were a number of really innovative solutions that came to the fore to address the problem, kind of the finest aspect of American innovation at work, quick responses at scale to big problems. So let's talk about 2021 and the remarkable year it was for capital raising, investment, and M&A. The digital technology sector in particular attracted dramatic amounts of capital at record high valuations, almost $30 billion in funding in 2021, which was double the 2020 level, and the 2020 level was double that of 2019. So we've seen a fourfold increase in digital tech investment in the last three years. So what are some of the forces contributing to this increased investor interest and these very high valuations, Rob? You know, many of these things would have happened, Dave, under any circumstances, and they certainly were starting. These are trends that have gone on not just for years, but actually for decades. But I think in hindsight, we'll look back at this period of time as sort of like we looked at the NASA space race to the moon in the 60s or even World War II. And you think about, you know, the technology, the innovation, the industrialization. In this case, now it's, you know, digitization of this industry is, you know, on that kind of scale, like a warlike effort. Mm -hmm. That was, you know, accelerated, of course, by the pandemic. So you've got digital health tools that have been out there for a while, but which became not just interesting, but necessities for both clinical care as well as for the financial side of the industry. And it's both for episodic and for chronic care that we saw that happening. I'd say that the treatment of chronic conditions became or is and has been particularly important diabetes, heart disease, mental health, as I mentioned earlier, musculoskeletal issues, you know, the ability to use various digital health tools during the pandemic for all of these things accelerated, which was super exciting to see. And then, of course, you've got that sort of combining with what the tech industry has been driving us towards for such a long time, you know, more active consumer engagement and tools to help us take care of ourselves one way or another, you know, sometimes just taking care of our mental health and then finally, I'd say that, you know, there's this increased need for, for digital and IT solutions to manage, you know, providers and payers accelerating trend of migrating from fee-for-service to risk-based payment models. So all of those things came together at a dramatically more robust pace since 2020. And I think we'll look back at this and say, wow, that was a remarkable time. Yeah, war footing. Very, very interesting way to put this into perspective. We've all experienced a lot of changes and disruption in our life. But one thing you touched on, Rob, really kind of resonated with me, and it's the treatment of chronic conditions and the spotlight that COVID placed on health equity and the fact that we saw differential rates of disease contraction, hospitalization, and death in low-income communities, inner city and rural. And because of that, we saw some new tools, some new urgency put into this whole concept of health equity. I just wonder if you could bring those two trends together, the digitization of healthcare delivery and its opportunity to make access both easier and more affordable as we as a country grapple with these longstanding issues that are disproportionately affecting lower income Americans and in a way that I think shocks most of us. Could you just touch on those two threads a bit? 
I'll certainly try. I mean, look, it has always been an unfair playing field for our society in terms of access to health care, whether it was, you know, walking into a doctor's office or a clinic or an urgent care center or the emergency department. The pandemic obviously has impacted people in certain communities, certain age groups, certain socioeconomic categories in a more profound way. That's a fact. We see that in the numbers. And so we certainly think that the entities out there, whether they are existing health systems and providers, payers, or, you know, as we're talking about here, these innovators have a new imperative during the pandemic, uh, driven partly by the pandemic, to try to address that. And, you know, technology can be an amazing solution. But on the other hand, we've got lots of people in the U.S., who don't even have access to that technology. Obviously, the infrastructure need for broadband, for instance, to do a telehealth visit or to engage if you have kidney disease, to engage in a virtual solution is dependent upon whether you've got the access in your home to the equipment, meaning the line in your house or the computer or the smartphone, which many people, of course, don't have. So with that as a backdrop, I think the question on everyone's mind is, will the level of investment in U.S. healthcare continue at the current level or even greater levels? We're probably at the end of the longest bull market in history. What's your view on investment activity in healthcare going forward? Well, it's probably driven in part by the broader economy. Your comment about the longest bull market is certainly relevant. I think if we had done this, we probably did do this interview two years ago and three years ago. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I might have said at the time that, you know, gee, I don't know if this, you know, if this economy can keep growing like this. And I'm not just talking about the healthcare economy. I'm talking about the, you know, the overall U.S. economy. But here we are. At the end of the day, you know, in an industry that is, as I said, trillions of dollars, if we can make minor changes, you know, small changes to reduce costs, to make care delivery more efficient, to make medical record keeping more ubiquitous, to provide access to a broader group of people, as we talked about a few minutes ago, those are things that will absolutely continue to attract massive amounts of investment from venture capital to private equity to family offices to large corporations, regardless of what the economy looks like, regardless of where interest rates are, regardless of where inflation is, although certainly that has a big impact. I think that this is the reason, frankly, Dave, that you and I got involved in the healthcare industry, among other reasons, 30 plus years ago, was because we knew that it was an industry that was going to and will continue for generations to provide opportunities for growth, for innovation, for capital investment, and frankly, hopefully, for making things better. Yeah. Well, so we've been talking about value-based care and risk-sharing models between providers and payers for over a decade. Progress has been slow and the benefits anemic for all involved. But what are you seeing that indicates meaningful change here? Because I think you and I both agree that we may not be at a tipping point yet, but we're certainly starting to scurry up toward the adoption of more fundamental change in in payment and delivery than we've seen up to this point. Yeah. Look, and it's still just a very, very small percentage of the overall addressable market, meaning, you know, the market for individuals seeking health care just a tiny percentage of it is met today by value-based care or risk models. 
I would argue that it's been going on for longer than a decade. I mean, I think back to, you know, when we used the phrase HMOs back in the early 90s. <laughs> and, you know, that was really all about shifting risk as well. And here we are, you know, 30 years later, having a similar dialogue. Look, I think that what the missing link then was, was information technology, was IT solutions. Mm-hmm. And Yep. And, you know, maybe there weren't good motivations to move to that model, but I'd say the main thing was people just didn't know how to do it. Today, as we look at it, we do have the technology solutions to enable providers and payers to engage in discussions and contracts with one another that do pass risk from the payer to the provider. And I do believe there is ample evidence that in doing that, you can reduce costs in the system and achieve better outcomes. Frankly, it's true in every part of the healthcare economy. It's not just providers and payers. It's true, for instance, in the medical technology world, where you see med tech companies that are incorporating outcome measures into total cost contracting arrangements. I mean, that's a remarkably innovative way for a medical device company like a Medtronic or somebody, you know, for them to think about this, the patient populations that they're serving. And then the last point is, you know, all around the healthcare industry, you've got these other trends that we've been talking about, and they're pervasive in every part of our lives. It's about consumerism. It's about personalized devices. Those devices may not just be your phone. They can be in your ears. They can be on your eyes in the form of, you know, glasses or things like that. Obviously, you have artificial intelligence and data analytics that just are, you know, moving along at warp speed. All of those things today in the 2020s are prevalent in a manner that was absolutely unthinkable when people really first started to talk about value-based care decades ago. And so I find that incredibly exciting that it is here and still massive work that needs to be done. But that is the period of time that we're in right now. Yeah. Thank you for taking me back down memory lane. I remember the 90s pretty well. Everybody talked about trying to get higher up the food chain and, and own a bigger part of the healthcare dollar. But turned out we didn't really know what managing risk entailed. And the difference between now and then, I think, as you're saying, is we now have the data and the systems to track value in much more meaningful ways, link it to outcomes. So much of the activity in the 90s was about preventing care access, just save money by having gatekeepers stop individuals from getting care. And that was driving a lot of the activity. I think now the real focus is on How do you drive a better outcome at a lower cost? And there are many, many more tools to make that happen. And of course, the government got involved, and as it had to, it's the largest payer, of course. And you look at MA, you look at the DCE, you know, direct contracting model. These are, you know, places where CMS over just the last 10 years or less that you've had these programs that the government got behind and passed risk from the government fee-for-service model to a value-based model. So once it started to happen there in a material way, then, of course, you had all sorts of, and we will continue to have all sorts of companies, large and small, all types of investors, large and small, saying, I can do this. This is actually absolutely where it's moving. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about 2022 and what's been going on since we're now almost two months into the new year. And the pace of transactions hasn't slowed at all. There have been lots of big deals. We've seen many of healthcare's high-flying IPO classes of 20 and 21, although decline in value. 
How would you characterize where we are right now and what's the rest of 2022 going to portend for the industry and particularly the investment side of the industry? You know, innovation takes a lot of things, but if I if I had to boil it down and way oversimplifying, it takes remarkable ideas and it takes the tools, which includes capital, to implement them. It also includes, of course, as we're talking about in this conversation, information technology and, and so forth. And so that's the reason that I think that we are in this period of healthcare innovation, this golden age, is that we have both those things. We have the tools, as we've been talking about, with the investments that have been made over the last 20 years in the IT infrastructure, the digital infrastructure, the consumer digital infrastructure, B2C and B2B in this country. That is prolific and profound, and it is now being harnessed in the healthcare industry. And then what you have is the people who provide capital, whether it's very large companies, both for-profit and tax-exempt. Or, of course, as we've talked about, institutional capital, venture capital and private equity or public institutional capital. I'd say as a sidebar that, yeah, the high flyer, I think that's how you refer to them, IPO classes, those stocks, many of them are down 40, 60, 75 percent from their high watermark. But when I look at absolute values of a number of companies, and I'm I'm not going to really get into the names of various companies here, but When I look at the absolute value that they are trading at, the total market capitalization, I still believe that those reflect very attractive valuations. Now, if a company has gone from a $15 billion market value to a $5 billion market value, well, that's not so good for a lot of people. But, you know, what I look at is, is $5 billion a fair and attractive valuation for a company that doesn't make money yet and is trading off of a future revenue multiple and so forth? And I would argue that it is. And I would also say that in my 35-year investment banking career, there have been more periods of time where companies could not raise capital in the public market than vice versa. Yeah. So I look at it and say, for the right companies to go public and complete an IPO, whether it's an underwritten IPO or a SPAC merger, is actually something that's a unique opportunity for the right companies. And if not, then, you know, guess what? There is more capital available from these other sources that I've been talking about probably than ever before. So I think that they will continue to be there. I think that they will continue to invest in chronic care and mental health solutions and diabetes and cardiovascular care and oncology, and as well as, of course, primary care. And then that other point, Dave, that we talked about earlier in the conversation, which is health equity. And I think that some of the use of technology for social determinants of health types of business models, whether for-profit or not-for-profit, are obviously critical to this. So all in all, I'm very optimistic about this trend continuing. And that's why we named the piece what we did. Yeah. Well, you know, that's fascinating about the availability of capital and how over the course of the last 30, 35 years, there have been more periods when it's been harder to get capital than than easier. And I can't think of a good company right now that doesn't have multiple ways to get the investment funding it needs. So that being the case is remarkable, and we should note it. There's also always the question of execution and market fitness, and there are so many companies competing in these verticals across the space that we'll see some winners and some losers. And one thing I'd like you to touch on before we wrap up is 
What's going on in terms of industry consolidation and M&A, and how do you see that playing out not only this year, but into the next couple of years as well? You know, every period of time where there's innovation happening and change, there are going to be winners and losers. There's, you know, probably half a dozen companies that are out there that are doing new models of kidney care and, you know, using different approaches. The end objective is the same, which is keep people out of dialysis centers, keep them out of the dialysis chair, so to speak, just as the primary care businesses that are out there or the companies that are doing chronic care management, their goal, when you really get down to it, is just to keep people out of the hospital, keep people out of high-cost care settings in lower and actually frictionless care settings is what it's all about. But by definition, there probably is not a need for six or eight or 10 or 15 companies in each one of these verticals. So some of them will succeed, some of them won't. Lots of them will consolidate or be consolidated, meaning they'll merge with one another if they can get through some of the social issues and all that and the relative valuation issues. Others will just be acquired by larger players. And that's the healthcare economy and the capitalist system at work here. I think that we'll continue to see that. The dialogue that we are privy to and really sort of honored to have with players in every part of the healthcare industry would indicate that CEOs and boards see it that way. They see it as a very, what I'm going to call, target-rich environment, and that's very exciting. doesn't mean every deal that people want to get done will. Of course they won't because there's just too many uh, different moving pieces out there. But I think that we'll continue to see, I'd say, record-breaking levels of investment activity and M&A activity this year, 2022, and probably for the foreseeable future, because it is the logical extension of this period of innovation and new company formation and new business models. And uh, some will work really, really well, and others will be an interesting idea that are ahead of their time, and some, of course, will just fail. All of those will lead to more activity of one sort or another. Well, Kane Brothers bankers have been very busy and will continue to be very, very busy for the foreseeable future, which is great. Robert, you know, I can't let you go without asking you to make a big, bold prediction about the future. So as you kind of look out over the horizon, what's your crystal ball tell you is happening? Well, Dave, as you know, my, obviously my perspective, as you just pointed out, is that of a, an investment banker to the healthcare industry. So I, I tend to think about those types of things, and I look at I look at you with the with the greatest respect as somebody who's actually a visionary for what's happening in the healthcare industry. From my perspective, what we're going to see is more non-traditional healthcare entities, for-profit and not-for-profit, and more private equity firms, for instance, play a role, an active role in large transformational deals. And the reason for that is multifaceted. But one of them that has changed since you and I had our last conversation a year ago is the intense antitrust scrutiny over vertical integration in every sector, but including in healthcare. And this is the real deal, you know, both at the FTC and the Department of Justice, where we're going to see large strategic deals come under pressure. For example, looks pretty likely that uh, the DOJ will seek to block the acquisition. I think it's a $12 billion acquisition announced, you know, 13 or 14 months ago of Change Healthcare by Optum. Looks like that's going to have some major challenges if it's able to be completed. And the other end of or a different spectrum, you know, the FTC last week blocked the merger in uh, Rhode Island of two leading health systems, Lifespan and Care New England. 
These are companies like Change Healthcare or systems like Lifespan and Care New England that, you know, they may choose to just go it alone, wait it out, wait till there's a different antitrust environment. But given all that we've been discussing here about innovation and the need for capital, I think that we're going to see these types of entities that are shut out of doing deals that they thought made the most sense seek alternative ways of making these deals happen. And to me, that means not a traditional vertical or horizontal integration, but rather finding alternative sources of capital or, as I said, players that are not traditional healthcare companies, whether it's the big four tech companies or whether it's Walmart or whomever. I think those types of players can invest heavily in the healthcare economy in this country and will do so more and more in the next couple of years. So that's really what I'm expecting to happen. Yeah. That is such a uh, mind-blowing concept in a way. You know, a PE company takes over the Mayo Clinic or something like that, right? Or or Walmart gets into the insurance business in a big way. Those really are big market changes that could alter fundamental supply-demand dynamics with everything that that represents. So we'll be on the lookout and First one of those that happens, I'm sure we'll be writing an article and doing commentaries about and so on. Just makes it a really, really interesting time to be in healthcare and to be thinking about where it's all going. So, Rob, as always, just thanks for this great discussion. I encourage our listeners to read Rob's and my article, Looking Back, Looking Forward, A Golden Age of Healthcare Innovation, with a question mark at the end to learn more. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep doing what you're doing to make our healthcare system kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dave.